Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us, and now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, as we pray that you will be blessed by the preaching of the truth of God's Word today. As the springtime approaches, unfortunately, so does allergy season. So I ask your indulgence for a second as I try to relocate my voice. But if you would, please go ahead and take out your copy of God's Word and turn to John's Gospel, where we look to a, a familiar story, but in an unfamiliar place. Now, normally when we hear about the, uh, the occasion where Christ, as it's usually titled in your copy of the Bible, when He cleanses the temple... Uh, we see that happening right before his sacrifice. But in John's gospel, it's different. In John's gospel, it comes early on. And there's been several explanations for that that have been uh, brought up over the years. I won't belabor you with that right now. But it's interesting that in one hand, if John wasn't necessarily going in chronological order, but in order of emphasis, he puts this in a very odd place because it suggests that this is one of the primary things about Jesus' ministry rather than his eventual sacrifice on Calvary for us. Also, there's the fact that he keeps using chronological terms like after these things or after this. So one of the things that we can kind of take away from it, and many theologians have, is that there was more than one time that this occurred in Jesus' history. But either way, the person that we normally think of as the meek and lowly, gentle and kind Savior, teacher, and rabbi at this point in his ministry got angry. And he got ferociously angry. Angry to the point that an area roughly the size of a couple of football fields, he was able to muscle his way through and drive people and animals out. Someone who was, Jesus was not lacking in strength or lacking in conviction, nor was he lacking in righteousness. In fact, we're going to read in just a second the phrase, the zeal for my house has consumed me. What should that mean to us? As we read through this scripture, I want you to think about three things. First of all, uh, Jesus is at a physical temple. But I want you to think about this. Where is the temple located today? There is a bunch of thrown cast down blocks in the ancient city of Jerusalem that used to be the temple. But the temple isn't located there anymore. In fact, it hasn't been there for some time. Now, I want you to ask yourself that question as we continue on. Where is the temple today? Secondly, if the, what am I allowing into my ministry? Because each and every one of us are a minister of some kind. It may be your ministry as a, a bringer of hospitality. It may be your ministry as a teacher. It may be your ministry as someone who helps with our media ministry. It may be uh, your ministry as someone who works behind the scenes and keeping the building standing. All of us have a ministry. 
They're not always center stage the way that, that the called pastor is. But all of us have a ministry. Is there anything in my life, in my heart, that I've let come in from the outside world that shouldn't be there? Lastly, as we approach the Lord's table at communion, which is what this message is leading towards, I don't think that there's any coincidence that this just happened to be the next teaching of Christ that was in, the, in, in line of John's gospel, and that just so happened to occur on a communion Sunday. I think that there is a point that is being made here, and it wasn't made by me because I'm not smart enough to do it. The last thing I want you to consider is this. How precious is the Word of God to you? All of us are called to be disciples of Christ. If you are a Christian, you've called Him as Savior and as what? As Lord. Meaning that you are a disciple. You are a student, in other words, an apprentice under the master teacher who is Christ. How are we doing at prioritizing the thing that He wants us to have in our lives. So, the account of Christ's cleansing of the temple. John chapter 2, starting with verse 12. When you get there in your copy of God's Word, say amen. As we read together. After this, there's that chronology again. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And they stayed for a few days. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, before we get too far into this, let me give you a little bit of background. Every year, every year, the Jewish way of teaching the scripture is through their calendar. Let me say that again. The Jewish way of teaching the Scripture is through their calendar. Through remembering the wilderness wanderings in the Feast of Tabernacles. Through remembering the rescue of the people of God from Egyptian slavery in Passover. By remembering His provision and mercy and bringing together people who were unlike through the Feast of Weeks, what we call Pentecost. So every time there is a feast or there is a festival, it's remembering and reminding the Word of God. That's how they teach it. That's why as Christians we remember things like resurrection morning, what we glibly call Easter. What, when we remember things like the birth of Christ in Christmas. So it's important in remembering, when you worship you remember what God has done for you. And in the Jewish mind it's through their calendar. And every year if you're an able-bodied Jewish person, you had three commitments to journey to the temple. It was mandatory. Every, excuse me, every Pentecost, every Passover, and every Feast of Tabernacles. One feast in the spring, one in the summer, one in the fall. If you were a Jewish family and you were capable of making the trip, you had to make the trip to Jerusalem. So Jesus, being both a rabbi and a good Jew, uh, behind the law and fulfilling the law through his life, he took his family and his disciples as the eldest son, presumably his father Joseph, or his earthly father Joseph had passed away by this point in time, and he was regarded as the head of the household. So he and his students and his family all ventured to the tabernacle, excuse me, to the temple together. And if you had to take a long trip, 
you nevertheless still had to offer the prescribed sacrifices. And a lot of times, Jewish families would liquidate their holdings. They would take cattle, sheep, livestock, whatever the actual sacrifice was. They would sell it off for silver or for whatever money that they could get. They would travel down to Jerusalem where they would find somebody. They would change out the money so that it would be acceptable money to the temple authority. And we'll get into that a little bit later. And they would purchase the sacrifice. They would purchase doves. They would purchase sheep. They would purchase cattle. They would purchase whatever at that location the prescribed sacrifice was going to be. So that wasn't unusual. What was unusual is where that was taking place and the way that it was taking place. While they were in the temple, they were meeting in a place called the Court of the Gentiles. This was a large area that was surrounding the temple proper, the building structure where the sacrifice was to happen. Now this place was a place that was set aside that was several hundreds of feet in length and in width for the people who were not Jews themselves to come into the temple grounds to hear the word of God being proclaimed to be educated in the things of God and to come into a place where they could meet safely with the God of Israel. That's why it was called the court of the Gentile or more literally the court of the peoples of the nations. It was a place whose sole ministry was to bring in, to evangelize, to bring into the community of God the people who had been exiled from it. So Jesus is coming into the court of the Gentiles and he doesn't see a place where people are being evangelized or be, people are being taught. He doesn't see where people who are down in prayer, he sees money changers. He sees livestock. He sees a lot of things going on that shouldn't be going on, including an exorbitant exchange rate going on where people are exchanging Roman coins for sanctuary shekels at a commission of over 12% we read in history. So people weren't just having a marketplace within the temple grounds. They were being gouged for sacrifices. It is said that this temple shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a what? A den of thieves. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others, sitting in tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This is not the meek and lowly Savior that we've come to expect. This is someone filled with righteous indignation. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written in one of the greatest messianic psalms. Zeal for your house will consume me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. This is the temple grounds. The temple was not just that cross-shaped building. I want you to notice that incidentally. That cross-shaped building in the middle facing from east to west. That giant square in the outskirts of that central complex was called the Court of the Gentiles. This is, where this, was the, this is where the selling and the exchanging was going on. This was the place set aside to bring people outside of a relationship with God 
into a relationship with God. And as we look at what Jesus is telling us, he's actually quoting some of the words of the prophet Isaiah when it comes to the ministry of the temple. What he's alluding to is Isaiah chapter 56. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord is surely going to exclude me from his people. And let no unit complain, I am only a dry tree. Let nobody who doesn't have, who is not brought up in an Israeli home claim that they are not acceptable to God, is what he's basically saying. Eunuchs, by law, could not be partaker. Someone who is part of the community of God could not become a eunuch. Foreigners were prohibited from taking part in the marriage of God. But the way that that was circumvented was when someone like Rachel, excuse me, not someone like Ruth, proclaimed before God and his people, your people shall be my people, your God shall be what? My God, in that instant, they stopped being an outsider, they stopped being a Gentile, they stopped being a center, excluded from the people of God, and they become part of the people of God. Once you claim faith, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you are brought in. Let no foreigner say that I'm worthless. Let no eunuch say that I'm excluded because all can be redeemed. Even in the Old Testament. The, Old Te the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament what? Revealed. As we continue reading, for this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what, what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these will I bring into my holy mountain and give them joy in the house of prayer." Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted upon my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is what Jesus saw being desecrated. Not just the fact that something, that, that commerce was going on in a place that it didn't have any business going on. But that they were excluding the ministry for which this place had been set aside. That the people who were outside of the, the nation of Israel were still being made unwelcome into the nation of Israel. The people who were curious, the people who wanted redemption, the people who hungered and thirsted for the things of God, the people who were in need of salvation were being forced out because money took priority, because convenience was more important. You can't sit in that pew. Think about it for a second. You can't sit in that pew. This is somebody else's pew. You ain't from around here, are you? How many times have we heard stories where that has crept into a place that it didn't belong? Where the people of God who were supposed to be just as welcoming, just as loving, Christian, Christ-like, just as accepting as Jesus himself started putting lists. No, you have to be this, 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 this. You have to sit over here. You can't engage. You can't be part. How many times has our love 
been made conditional. Something to think about. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Temple in Jewish theology and in turn Christian theology, write this down. The temple is the place where the presence of God is found on earth. Let me repeat that. The temple is the place where the presence of God can be found on earth. Now, in olden times, God is, of course, everywhere. That's not just in olden times. That's, that's all throughout. God is omnipresent, omniscient, and, all, and omnipotent. All-wise, all-loving, all-knowing, all-present. Past, present, future, space and time, doesn't matter. He's there. But the Shekinah glory of God... The presence and the glory of God is what we're talking about now. In the terms of, before the birth of Christ, God chose to minister through a structure called the tabernacle, tent of meeting. Then later on, through the work of King Solomon, the temple proper. And then a miracle happened in Bethlehem, one starry night. And the fullness of the Godhead became manifest bodily in a human being named Jesus of Nazareth. We'll hear about that in just a second. And then Jesus left earth, is seated currently on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But the presence of God never left the side of the people of God. Once Christ entered into the courts of heaven, Another person of the Godhead came to dwell on earth. And he's dwelling in a place. I, I have an issue, and I know that there are some that will disagree with me, but I'll say it just for the sake of saying it. I have an issue with a church that describes itself as a temple. Why? Because there is no currently a building that is a temple. There is no organization that currently is a temple. Where is the temple of God currently? You. If you are in Christ personally, then you are the dwelling place of the presence of God in this world. God's power through the presence of the Holy Spirit shall be in you, with you, and upon you. Now, when we say the temple of, I am a temple, my body is a temple, some people take that to, to an extreme. I remember uh, there, there's a, a funny saying out there, it's a, a funny comic where there's a guy trying to force feed himself an entire pizza and he says, my body's a temple and I'm trying to make it into a megachurch. Um, where you know, we, we can get glib about that, but the fact of the matter is, yes, one, we need to take care of ourselves because we are not only at the temple of God, but we're a creation of God. But two, what you do in your conduct, your conversation, and your character testifies to the things of God. Do you ever think about that? If you're the indwelling presence, if, if you have within you the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God and you ignore Him, or you put other idols in the place of Him, things go awry because people start thinking, 
well, if he's that way, he's a representative of Christ, therefore all Christians must be what? That way. If this person is from Highland Baptist Church and they act a certain way, then what are they teaching over there? That kind of thing. For if the temple is filled with sin and not filled with the glory of God, if the temple is desecrated rather than sanctified, then the ministry of the temple is put into jeopardy. So the temple, both bodily and theologically, as the building, as the person of Christ, as us, the temple is a place of communion with God. The temple is a place where in in today's time, Paul says that we can go boldly before the throne of grace to make our petitions known that we may receive mercy in our hour of need whenever we want. We don't have to go to a specific structure like they did back then. We don't have to offer sacrifices on a brazen altar the way that they did back then. All we have to do is bow our hearts and our heads in prayer and begin to speak, and He hears us. The temple is a place to offer sacrifices. In our case, sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of good works, not to be saved, but out of thanksgiving, because we have been saved. And we have a God that loves us. Therefore, He is owed everything that we are. You are not your own. You have been bought with what? A price. You are redeemed, in other words. It's a place of instruction and worship. It's a place in that day where rabbis used to get around and teach their disciples in this holy place. In Jesus' case, His disciples might have thought this was something akin to a holy field trip. In our case, we are assured that the presence of God Himself will bring to our remembrance all things that Christ has taught us. Now we do have nice classrooms and stuff like that where we can gather together, where we can hear one another, where we can sharpen one another. But we also have the Holy Spirit in us, with us, and upon us. But moving on. It's a place where, this is the big one in this instance, it's the place where an outsider to the things of God encounters the Holy One of Israel. The temple was a place specifically set aside where the outsider can encounter the Holy One of Israel. In that time, it was the court of the Gentiles. In Christ, it was hearing His voice, seeing His face. When He he confronted Thomas, when Thomas was asking Him, show us the Father and that will be enough, Jesus answered to him, if you have seen Me, then you have what? Seen the Father. And today... We, as the possessors of the Holy Spirit, are the ones who act as the hands and feet and the voices of Christ at work within this world. Let's make sure that our temple is clean as well. Matthew, just so that we can hear a little bit more about the words of Jesus. Matthew, again, who's the person who knew shorthand. He writes down in his gospel, Chapter 21, at the second encounter at the temple, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but this is the second part of that. You have made it a den of robbers. I prefer just the bluntness of the the King James. You have made it a den of thieves. You're not matching coin for coin. You're giving them 12, you're asking 12% of, 12% interest. You're gouging them. 
when they are desperate to make it here in time so that they can take part in the worship as is their custom, as it is prescribed in law, <coughs> you are holding their souls for ransom. You're holding their souls for money. Remember that the next time that you see a televangelist on TV telling you not to get upset because he wants two jets instead of one. But that's another sermon. <clears throat> There's several idols that we see bring, being brought into this. This is what Jesus is confronting theologically, not just the fact that, uh, that people were buying and selling in the temple grounds, but what was going on in their hearts as well. Because something, things that were supposed to be outside, things that were of the world, things that didn't have any place within the house of God, things that were being confronted, things that were depraving people of their ability to get close with God, those were being welcomed into the house of God, the things of the world, the things of the flesh, the things of, if you want to, the devil himself, as we'll see in just a second, were being welcomed into the front yard of the house of God. And among them especially was the idol of self-interest, the idol of pride. Jesus is quoting when he says, den of thieves, from Jeremiah's prophecy when he writes to us. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The God of Israel says, Reform your ways and actions, and I will let you live in this place. He's talking about the promise of the land. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This temple of the Lord, this temple of the Lord, this temple of the Lord. Don't brag about the building. It's not the building. It's the person who owns it. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not follow other gods, including the gods that you harbor in your heart, to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless, following human wisdom. Ignoring the things of God. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury? Burn incense to Baal, the false gods? And follow other gods that you have not known? In other words, are you going to act just like you who have been called out of the world? Ecclesia, the called out ones, the church. Are you going to act just like everybody else? Are you going to be just as pagan as them? And then after you've done all that, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. The idol of self-interest is one that many of those who were in the court of the Gentiles were bringing in. You want to make your sacrifice or not? You want to exchange those pagan coins for sanctuary shekels or not? You want to have your heart, with God, heart right with God or not? Sow the seed. Make your donation. Make me rich. If you want all these things to happen, you're going to have to pay a price for it. So what he was confronting wasn't just the act of selling. It was what was going on in the heart of the people here. 
Do we praise God while we worship ourselves instead? Do we put the things of the world in the place of the Holy One? Do we welcome sin into the doctrine of the things of God? Do we not only tolerate sin, but justify it, rationalize it, indoctrinate it? Do we sacrifice to the idols of greed and political power? Instead, in the place of God, in the place of God, I remember not more than 20 years ago on the floor of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, there were people who were passing out political pins and buttons. People who were asking other people, vote for me, vote for me, vote for me, in a Baptist Convention! Sacrificing to the idols of greed and political power in a place where only the things of God should be considered. And worst of all, defiling the testimony of God's people in the eyes of the stranger, the eyes of the very people who we have been called to redeem, potential brothers and sisters in Christ. Following back along with John's gospel, the Jews responded to him. Once they saw him driving out all the money changers and the livestock, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all these things? They were asking the Almighty for his ID. Jesus answered to them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Now this would be misquoted later on during his trial. But they would remember it. Destroy this temple. He wasn't talking about the stone structure. He wasn't talking about the thing that Herod had constructed on that sacred ground. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to raise it again in three days? Christ, if he wanted to, could raise it again in three seconds. But that's not the temple he was talking about. The temple he had spoken of was his own body, the dwelling place of the fullness of the Godhead in human form, bodily. After he was raised from the dead, then his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. It's amazing how many times we don't have faith in something until we see it happen. Or we ignore something of God until we see it come to fruition for ourselves. We, it, the, the warning is almost not good enough. The teaching is almost not good enough. We have to experience it before it actually takes root in our hearts. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw signs that he was performing and believed in his name. People in the court of the Gentiles were excluded, made unwelcome. A pathway, a space was made for something that was not of God, where it should have been meant for them. But for Jesus, the living temple, the person who was God in human form, he welcomed them in. He healed. He forgave. He performed signs and wonders. He demonstrated the love of God. In his case, the court of the Gentiles were being used for what it should have been used. The stranger was welcomed. They were taught. And they came to believe. Do you see the connection? Do you see the connection? What the building should have been doing all along, but wasn't. 
what he as the perfect representation did, and then lastly, what we need to do ourselves. Do you see the connection? Jesus at this time would not entrust himself to them. By that, he means he wouldn't declare himself Messiah. We see that happen a lot. He wasn't going to be declared the Messiah until Palm Sunday. For he knew all the people. He knew their hearts, in other words. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. How often do we let this reign in our hearts instead of making room for the stranger? Now, I'll tag back to Matthew's gospel just a second because there was another more practical reason why Jesus did what he did. In Matthew's gospel, when he cleansed the temple and he drove out the money changers, part of the reason was this image was found all over the place on temple ground. This was the coin that many of them were exchanging for the sanctuary shekel, and in some cases they were just letting it slide straight into the temple coffers. This is a Roman coin, a denarius. The image on it was Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of the Roman Empire. On the front of it, next to his portrait, it says Caesar Augustus, but on the back of it, it translates, Son of God. How many of you knew that? So let's skip to another example. In Matthew's Gospel, right before his crucifixion, Jesus has cleansed out the temple, what I believe to be a second time, and he's teaching in the temple the next day, and Pharisees are coming in to try to trap him in his words, to try to trap him in either a form of false teaching or blasphemy. So the people of God are trying to crucify the people of God. That's another sermon, but I want you to bear it in mind. The Pharisees, the keepers of the law, the trusted ones of Israel, went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They set their disciples, their disciplines, to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity, starting with flattering words, and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Then tell us, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? If he says yes, then he's a defiler of Israel. He's a traitor. He's a Roman sympathizer. If he says no, then he's a rebel rouser. He's a zealot. He's a revolutionary. It's a trap. But this is what Jesus answered. Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. Remember, he's in the temple right now. He's teaching his disciples in the temple. Chances are he's no longer in the court of the Gentiles. Chances are he's in one of the deeper precincts, the Jewish precincts. And all these Pharisees are there with the priests of the law, teachers of the law, people who not only have memorized Torah, but proclaim it to their own disciples. And he's looking at them and he says, show me the coin. 
Jesus is laying his own trap. It doesn't teach us that in plain words because it's taking it for granted you will know this. So they brought him a denarius, that same coin that I showed you. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now what we don't get with that plain lettering is this. This is a graven image brought into the courts of the temple of God. One that declares that a human being who is a pagan is God. Who basically says, Caesar Augustus, this finite, feeble, fickle, fallible, frustrating person that he was, just like the rest of us, a sinner who was in desperate need of grace, who didn't know it. When a priest produces an idol, a graven image, out of his own pocket, not knowing that it was a sin, and that Jesus calls him on it, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, God and what is God, when he says, you've got a graven image right there, notice the next phrase, when they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him immediately. They left him and went away. Why? Because he knew that at any second, if Jesus had a mind to it, they could have commanded him to be stoned. They had brought an idol into the place of God. They had brought paganism into the place where only Jehovah was supposed to have been worshipped. Do we have the courage to do the same? As we come to the table of God in communion, do we have the courage to do likewise? If we are the body, if we are the temple, if we are the people of God, where the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit lie, do we have that same zeal, that same conviction, that same integrity to say something is wrong? This is something that's in my life that never had a place there. This is something that I have tolerated that never should have been. Is it the idol of greed? Is it the idol of pride? Is it the idol of anger? Is it the, is it the idol of unforgiveness? Not what we have done in action, but we, we harbor in our heart in intention, anger, malice, bitterness, greed, unforgiveness, impatience, hatred. What idols, tolerance, unrighteousness? What do we harbor in our hearts that have no place there? Remember, as we come to this table, once a month. It is not with each other that we share communion. For two or more are gathered, I am what? I'm in the midst of them. Communion is not about fellowship with each other, even though it is something that we enjoy together. 
It is the highest time of fellowship for the Christian. It is also the time when we enjoy the fellowship with our Redeemer, our fellowship with Christ himself. And before we come to the table, we are commanded in the word of God, let everyone examine for themselves. Again, I don't think that it's any coincidence that this was what was next for us. When have we not heard the cry of the needy? When have we not stood in front of others as the example of Christ-likeness that we should have always been? In our dealings with others, in our dealings with each other, when have we not been the person that we were created to be, the person we were redeemed to be? person we have been regenerated through the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God to be. And all God's people said, so Heavenly Father, as we come before your table now, we do so asking that you would revive within us a drive, a determination to be a living example of you before a world who desperately needs you. Lord, for the times that we have let our eyes see, our ears to hear, our thoughts to rationalize, when we have taken within us the idols of this world and let them harbor in our hearts, in the holy of holies of our hearts, the places where it never should have belonged, give us the courage, give us the conviction, give us the determination and the strength to banish them from who we are. As we lift our hearts to you right now, prepare us to be in a place where we can enjoy your presence. Prepare us, forgive us for the times that we have sinned and fallen short. Forgive us for the times where you have shown us how to grow and we've ignored it. Forgive us for the times that we've had the opportunity to be your hands and feet and we have not. Forgive us, we pray. Cleanse our hearts. Free us for joyful obedience. Free us to be one family under you, the author and perfecter of our faith. As we dedicate this time in ourselves into your hands without reservation, free us from sin so that we might serve and celebrate you with everything that we are, without reservation. For it is in the matchless name of Christ we ask these favors. All God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.